Welcome to Employed, a podcast about careers. Whether you're at a point of having to make a career choice or you simply like to hear what others are passionate about, Employed is about the workers who make up our nation's economy. I'm Allie, and today we are speaking with Alicia, a sports writer and sport law professor. My life changed when I realized it's not just the degree, it's not just shadowing, it's not just networking. I have to take all of those pieces to understand the industry and find a problem I can solve. Thank you so much, Alicia, for coming onto the show today and telling us a little bit about what you do. So can you introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, My name is Alicia Jessup. I'm a lawyer by education, licensed in California and Colorado. I practiced in a number of sectors for a handful of years, and then I transitioned into the sport industry, where today I'm a sports writer. I have a contract with The Athletic and The Washington Post, and I'm a full-time professor of sport law at Pepperdine University, and I have a small consulting company. What made you interested in this particular field in general? I grew up an only child. I still am an only child. And my dad is a big sports guy. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado, which is a pretty big sports town. And I spent a lot of my free time as a kid watching sports and following our different Denver teams with my father. Um, I tinkered in a lot of different sports as a kid Spent most of my time doing dance, though. It's not like a real big professional career for that outside of Broadway. But I knew I wanted to be involved in the sport industry. So that's why I pursued a legal education, because that seemed like a natural route to be able to work on the business side of the industry. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a sports writer. So again, grew up in Denver. And my freshman year of high school, we got a day off of school to shadow someone in a profession that we were interested in. And so I cold emailed the editor of my local newspaper for the sports section. And he was nice enough that he let me come spend the day with him. But he painted a pretty bleak and grim picture of what it meant to be a sports writer. So he talked about long hours, you don't get a lot of respect. So the players generally don't really like you. And in that day and age, there wasn't a lot of money in the profession. And so he also noted that there were very few women in the profession. So this was probably in 1998. And so by the time my mom came to pick my 14 year old self up that day, I kind of gave up on becoming a sports writer and decided from that point forward, I would go to law school. In law school, I had an idea that maybe I would become an agent. I learned a lot about what it means to be an agent though. And as an agent, you're literally working around the clock, focusing entirely on people's lives other than your own. And that wasn't something that really appealed to me. I like flexibility and freedom in a career. Um, So in law school, I really began focusing on what's called in-house counsel. So working for the legal department of a company. So I worked for Warner Brothers and I worked for the Screen Actors Guild in-house. That kind of broke me into the entertainment industry um, before I pivoted out of the legal profession and back to my first love, which was sports writing. That's so interesting, just the many different turns you took. And I'm so glad that you were able to kind of overcome your shadowing experience. And that's so hard as a teenager. Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And I think what I would tell your listeners is 
especially when you are pursuing a career in a really competitive industry, there's going to be a lot of naysayers or people mm -hmm. who are going to give you every reason under the sun why you can't do whatever it is you're seeking to do. And as a fragile mind then, I was young and I didn't have any other role models in the space. I listened to him. And 13 years later, when I ended up starting my website that led to me actually becoming a sports writer, I was like, man, like, this is what I should have been doing all along. I lost so much time believing this one person. So don't let anyone talk you out of your dream. And that being said, if you're a professional, you know, you, be, you need to be really cognizant about what advice you're giving people. And yes, you want to paint an accurate picture of what an industry or job entails, but you also don't want to dash somebody's dreams. Let's give a little background on the industry. What education or experience is required to become a sports writer? So most people go to school and they study journalism or they might study broadcast media. They could study creative writing or English. Even public relations would be a great degree. I don't have a degree in any of those. And I think if you look at the media industry right now, there is a wide gamut of people who are employed as sports writers. So really what got me my contracts is I have a very niche specialized area of coverage, which is the business and legal side of sports. So I have a bachelor of science in economics, and then I have a law degree and that education background gave me the knowledge base to write on those topics. So the cool thing about writing is there's not one prescribed major that somebody needs to focus on. And so there's really two roads a person can go down. Road one, you focus on their traditional degrees, journalism, broadcast media, PR. Option two, you're already a good writer. So you have the skill of writing. That's something that you already possess. And you take that skill and you apply it to a field that you can become an expert in. So analytics, law, business, whatever it is that moves your spirit, you go and study that thing and you bring into it your writing ability. And what are the demographics of your field? I mean, that, that person that you shadowed kind of talked about that, you know, women don't really dominate this field. I mean, have you seen any change in that? What does it look like now? Sports writing continues to be predominantly white, Caucasian, middle-aged men. So there is an organization out of the University of Central Florida called the Institute for Diversity and Ethics in Sport. It's founded by a man named Dr. Richard Lapchik. And every year, Dr. Lapchik produces a report on the demographics of the Associated Press. So the Associated Press is one of the main bodies for sports writing in the United States. And Dr. Lapchik studies, okay, what percentage of AP editors and writers are men? What percentage are women? What is their racial breakdown? And that data shows us year over year over year that it's predominantly Caucasian men who are middle age. I spent four years covering the Miami Heat where I was in the locker room every game. So between 2013 through 2017, I was covering the Heat in the locker room and I got used to being the only woman in wow. that locker room, the only female 
credentialed member of the media. So there are more women coming into the industry, but by and large, especially on the writing side, mm-hmm. there are very few women. There tends to be more women in front of the camera, um, not on what's called play-by-play rules. So there's very few women who actually call games or give what's called color commentary. Most of the women that you see in front of the camera in sports are in what is called a sideline role. So that's a very, very, very ancillary role where they throw the shot to the woman and she gives a 30 second comment every half hour. So women's presence in this industry is still very, very limited. People of color are very underrepresented as well, which is kind of a head scratcher given that the story that we're covering tends to be played mostly by people of color. So there's, um, there's a lot of gains that need to be made in terms of diversity and inclusion. Exactly. Do you see um, an advantage or a disadvantage of being a woman in this industry? I think my gender has been a huge advantage. I have largely been supported by men. Most of my mentors in the industry are men. Every job I've ever received in the industry, save for one, um, has been given to me by a man. I've only faced a couple of instances of sexual harassment, and that's unfortunate, but I would say 99.9% of my dealings have been very, very positive dealings. I think the benefit to being a woman in this industry is twofold. One, women see stories different than men. Women, we view the world a different way. And the way I see a story unfold is more of a, from a human, human interest perspective. And so my brain knows how to tell a story that way. And by and large, men's brains typically don't look at the story that way. And as demographic preferences are changing, that has really benefited me in my career. Um, The other thing that has benefited me is I'm very relational driven. Um, And so as a woman, I have a unique ability that a lot of men do not have to make someone feel very comfortable in speaking to me. And because I have that ability, the insights and information I'm able to obtain in an interview goes to a much deeper level. So I think my gender has actually helped me in a lot of instances. Um, You're going to run into the occasional jerk that doesn't like the fact that you're a woman and in a locker room. But for me, that's been very rare. That's comforting. And that's encouraging, I'm sure, for a lot of other women out there who might eventually be interested in something like this. I think a lot of it is how you carry yourself. And I think one thing that's really benefited me is I've always kept work in my personal life separate. So I never got into this industry to date players or to hang out with players. And I I think because of that, it has allowed my reputation to remain intact. Unfortunately, that's something that I still see some women doing in this industry. And typically when they're engaging in that type of behavior, the career is really short lived. And so we still face discrimination. It's still not a fully fair and inclusive environment, but there's also things that we can do to help foster a really good environment for the women that come after us. Is there a certain range of salary that someone can typically expect to make in this field? 
it really depends upon what you're doing. So a lot of people coming out of college will probably work for a smaller, more regional newspaper. Those jobs can pay starting around thirty-five or $40,000 a year. There is a growing trend not to hire people full-time, but rather to hire them as freelancers, in which case you can either be paid per piece. Um, in my career, I've either been paid per piece, I've been paid a base rate and then um, money on top of each click I get. Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is negotiable. Much of this boils down to a couple of factors. One, what region are you covering? So if you're in a city like Los Angeles or New York, you're going to make more money than you would in Des Moines, Iowa. Two, what size of company are you working for? Are you working for a small city-based newspaper or are you working for a national or international outlet? And then three, your following. The bigger following that you have, the more money you can command because ideally you're gonna drive your following to your media and your content and that drives clicks, which helps increase the price of advertising that the media outlet can charge. So there's a lot of factors. You can make tens of millions of dollars. You know, you can become Mitch Albom who wrote for the Detroit Free Press and wrote the book Tuesdays with Maury and then wrote a whole slew of other books. And he has a net worth of over $50 million at this point. Or you can be hustling in the yeah. middle of America <laughs> making 35 to 40 grand. It, it's a wide variance. Are there any special benefits to working in this field that you might not find in another industry? Well, we used to travel <laughs> yeah. and what that's going to look like in a post-COVID world, but that certainly was an incredible benefit. I've literally seen the world because of working in sports. I've traveled to different continents. I've covered teams around the globe, and that was hands down one of the greatest parts of the job. Um, for me, the things that I love are twofold. One, I like knowing about things before anyone else does. And when you're a journalist, you get information constantly being sent to you. And oftentimes that information is sent under what's called embargo. So you're not allowed to publicly release the information until the embargo lifts. And so you know something big's happening before anyone else knows. So that's really cool. Um, and also people talk to you. I, I hold a lot of stories in this heart of mine that like I can't utter because I need to verify my sources and mm -hmm. work through the editorial process. But you get to know a lot of really, really interesting things as a writer. The other thing I love about this is the relationships. You meet so many cool people. I've covered everything from the Super Bowl to the NBA finals, which pre-COVID took me on the road for a large part of my time. And you get to go into these cities. And if you're doing your job right, you're getting to know people in the cities as well. And I think back, I covered Super Bowl 47 in New Orleans, and it was pretty close to after Hurricane Katrina. And I spent a lot of time going to really famous landmarks in the city. So the jazz clubs, um, different bars, different yeah. restaurants, and like getting to know the people of New Orleans to flush out my storytelling. And it's incredible, the people that you meet and they'll talk to you and they'll tell you a lot of things that 
Um, it just gives you a different way of looking at the world. So I look, the way I look at the world is everyone has a story and my job is to figure out what that story is and to see if my platform that I have is in place to tell that story. What is maybe a really good experience that you've had or a really good day that you've had through your sports writing that kind of validated that you were in the right career? I think a good day came in June 2019. So how I got started in all of this is after that man talked me out of being a sports writer when I was 14, I decided to go to law school thought I was going to become an in-house counsel for an entertainment company or a sports team. I graduated at the start of the economic recession in 2008, 2009. And so a lot of your entertainment and sports jobs, they went away for new hires, similar to what we're facing now with COVID. It's, it's going to be a rocky economy for people coming out of college and graduate programs. So I was lucky in the sense that I found a full-time job practicing law not in anything I wanted to do. It was as a corporate litigator representing Fortune 500 companies and their contractual disputes, which is about as fun as interesting as it sounds. So I was dying a slow death. I was dying a slow death because I'm somebody who is very business savvy, but I need that creative element. So I finally came to a point where I said, okay, Alicia, you can keep complaining about your job, which you're lucky that you have because a lot of people are struggling right now, or you can do something to change your situation. And so I said, what do you want to do? If you could wake up every day for the next 40 years and do something, what would it be? And for me, that something is storytelling. And I said, okay, you want to be a storyteller. Well, what kind of story do you want to tell right now? And I said to myself, I want to write about sports. Okay, cool. But what can you do that's different than what everyone else is writing about? You know, you're, if you write about stats, there's a lot better people writing about stats. If you write about the Lakers, there's a lot better people writing about the Lakers. What can you do that would drive an audience to your site? And so for me, it was taking the knowledge I had gone to school for, which was law school, combining it with my passion, which was sports, tying it into my talent, which was writing and creating a sports law blog. So I start the sports law blog in 2011 called rulingsports.com truly as a passion project. It literally takes off overnight because I found the white space in the market. So I go in 24 hours from zero to 500 Twitter followers. I book my first radio show. Um, I sign with a broadcasting agent about three months in. I get a contract with Forbes nine months in. It literally happens overnight. But I was really I was working in a really niche area of the industry where I kept getting meetings through either people reaching out to me or my broadcasting agent. And the people were saying, Alicia, like, you're really interesting. Like, we want to bring you on full time, but like what you cover, like just doesn't fit with ESPN right now. It doesn't fit with Fox Sports 1 right now. It doesn't fully fit anywhere. So one of the most exciting days of my career came in 2019 when a man named Paul Fichtenbaum, who was previously the editor-in-chief of Sports Illustrated, and I grew up reading Sports Illustrated every week. It was like my personal manifesto as a kid. When he cold emailed me and said, Alicia, I've been following you since you started. There never was really a natural place for you in this industry because your beat is kind of weird. <laughs> but things are changing, the industry is changing, and we would like to bring you on to The Athletic. 
And so that, that was a nice moment because I had always believed in what I was doing. I thought there was value in the content I was creating, but I wasn't creating it merely to make money. I was creating it because I loved it. And I was so passionate about it that I was willing to do it for not a lot of money or free. And so when he offered me that contract, the former editor in chief of Sports Illustrated, I never as a child could have imagined that in my wildest dreams that someday he would say, I've been reading you for eight years and it's time talking to LeBron James and the locker room was cool. The Super Bowl was cool. It's been a lot of cool things, but I, I think that was a big highlight for me. You kind of woke yourself up and you said, this is not what I want to be doing. What, you know, and you really had to break it down the steps that you needed to take to really find your dream job and go for that. I think not a lot of people have that confidence. Yeah. And it, it makes me sad that more people don't have that because Life is really, really, really short. And I truly believe everyone on this planet has some certain gift that they're supposed to give to the universe and some sort of passion that they're supposed to pursue. And I think my true talent is I'm a storyteller. And I knew that you're probably going to make a lot more money for the time being staying in this law firm and putting your head down and working on these banking litigation cases And all of your friends are going to think you're totally nuts when you quit this job in the middle of a recession, take a 35% pay cut, and at 27 years old, go back and move into your parents' basement. But I would have thought I was completely crazy if I didn't do that because I knew I wasn't being true to what my calling was. Okay, so then what is a bad day or what is a challenge that you often face? There is a woman who's a researcher at the University of Houston who has now become a pop sensation. Her name's Brene Brown. She's a psychologist and she has a book over here on my nightstand called Dare to Lead. And in Dare to Lead, she begins the book by talking about a quote from President Roosevelt. And I'm going to butcher the quote, but it (laughs) essentially is, it's not the man in the stands who matters. It's the man who's in the ring, like ready to fight. And the hardest part about this job is for better or worse. And it's not like I'm even famous, but I have a really public life. And I put myself out there on a day-to-day basis. I put my thoughts and my ideas out into the public space for consumption. And the further I get in this field, the more eyes are on my thoughts. And the more eyes that are on your thoughts, the more people are going to have an opinion about your thoughts. And in the last couple of years, there have been a couple of times that I've gone viral because a celebrity or professional athlete has quote tweeted something I said and took a divergent opinion or perspective on that. And then when somebody with 17 million followers or 20 million followers does that, it opens up the floodgates and people can get really nasty and really mean and call you things that you know you aren't and call you things that you kind of wonder, okay, am I, am I that? Like, I didn't think I was that, but like, am I that? And those are the bad days. It hurts. Like it hurts to be bullied. It hurts to be questioned. It hurts 
to kind of be ripped apart. But if you are going to experience an ounce of success in a visible public field, you have to get over those things. Mm -hmm. And so each time that it happens to me, um, I notice that the level of care or attention I give to it, it gets shorter. So I think that's a positive, but yeah, that Twitter trolls are probably the worst part about this business. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine that, you know, when, when that happens the first, you know, several hundred times, maybe that just has to be so hurtful and just discouraging a little bit. So that's good to hear that, you know, it hurts less the more it happens. Yeah. It's, you know, what my dad always says is, you know, Alicia, if people are talking about you, it means that you're doing something right. Like you would rather have people talking about you than you putting things out into cyberspace and being met with crickets. And I I think that goes back to the quote that Brene Brown leads into her book, Daring Greatly with from Roosevelt is most people are too afraid to even put themselves out there. Yeah, And it tends to be the people who are afraid to put themselves out there that are trolling you that like, that's why they have time to troll you is because they're not creating anything. And so I think if you want to work in a creative space, you have to almost get to this point where you put a bubble around you and you just decide like, this isn't about them. Like, I'm not doing this for you. I'm doing this because it's central to who I am as a human and I'm going to put it out there and I'm going to move on. What is maybe a weird or unexpected situation that you've experienced? I I covered the Super Bowl when the power went off during Beyonce's halftime performance So pre-COVID during the Super Bowl, there are thousands of members of the media who are credentialed. And so a very select number of media are in the actual press boxes overlooking the field. Most of your media members are in what I call the guts of the stadium. So like when you go into a stadium, um, when you watch the players run off the field into the tunnel, there's like a circular hallway that surrounds the stadium. So the hallway is the shape of the stadium, the stadium circle, and there's all types of different offices and spaces back there. So for the Super Bowl, your media are going to be down some hallway inside the guts of the stadium without a field view. And so you're in this like dense industrial cement Space with big screen TVs. That's how you're watching the game. And so we're sitting there. We can hear Beyonce performing. It sounds cool. I pop up out of the space for a couple of minutes to actually go see her. I come back into the workspace and we're sitting there. I'm chatting again. I'm the only woman in my little table. I'm sitting with the people from the Denver Post. And all of a sudden, the power goes out. So this is in 2013. And we're living in this age where like, we're still like dealing with Al Qaeda, like we're still kind of in the Iraq war, Um, the Boston Marathon bombings coming the next year, like we're still in this really volatile period Mm -hmm. of time with terrorism, that's still a conversation we're having as a society. And my heart literally sinks. Because when you cover an event like a Super Bowl, there is such higher levels of security. So you actually see like armed gunmen 
on the tops of the stadiums, the buildings surrounding the stadiums. You go through really extensive security procedures. My heart literally falls out of my chest when the power goes off. I'm like, oh my gosh, what is happening? Um, It takes a little while to kick on. The guys are giving me a hard time. They're like, Forbes, they're calling me Forbes because I used to write for Forbes. Like, Forbes, what'd you do to the power? You turned it off. And so they're just giving me a hard time. And then the NFL. So when you're covering a sporting event, there's someone who hand delivers press releases to you throughout the event. So updates about what's going on with players. If someone's injured, the NFL brings a press release to every member of the media at the Super Bowl and says, the power went out. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Like we're sitting in the dark, like we're aware. But it just goes to show that nobody knew what was going on. And so they had to clarify it wasn't an attack. It wasn't a threat. The power had just gone out. So that was that was a really weird <laughs> um, instance that I'll probably never experience Terrifying. again. Yeah. Before we finish up, I, I do kind of want to talk about your experience as a, as a law professor and obviously not go through all of these questions, but you, you teach sports law. What does that mean? What kinds of you know, topics and subjects do you cover and what kind of students do you have? Great question. Um, so sport law is an emerging field, unlike math, for instance, where the Pythagorean theorem is not changing. Sport law is an emerging field, which is good and bad for me as a scholar in the field. It's arguably bad that I can't say this is 100% what it is. There are some people who argue that sport law isn't even a thing, but rather what I teach is just an application of other bodies of law to sport. Hmm. Then there's people who say, no, sport has its own body of law that one needs to know about to understand how this industry works. I obviously fall in that latter group. So I teach at Pepperdine University where we have a sport administration program and our students are young people who want to begin their careers working in the sport industry. So as a professor, I'm not teaching them to be lawyers per se, I'm preparing them to go work in an industry. And so from a legal perspective, my job is to help them understand how to best safeguard the sport business against legal risk. So I teach them how to be able to spot if this is happening, we might get sued. Here's why we might get sued. This is what we need to do. So my class comes into the subject more from a risk management perspective. The best part about my job is I get to work with young people every single day and Hopefully I get to hear the mistake that that editor of the newspaper made 20 years ago. And I get to encourage these young people that if they want to fly to Mars, if that's their career goal, okay, we're going to figure out how to make that happen. And I think that's the most impactful part of the job. Sport law, is that something that is taught in a lot of universities? Yeah, it's definitely growing. So sport management as a field is a very quickly growing field because sport is sexy. There's a lot of people who want to work in the industry. One con is not everyone who studies this is actually going to be able to obtain a job in the Mm -hmm. field. And that's something that I grapple with. And so I really work with students on 
how to make yourself distinctive and stand out and competitive in the industry. If you have some special skill or knowledge base or ability to solve a problem that the industry is facing, you will find a job in sports, but it's a lot more difficult for people who kind of take a basic approach, if you will, to actually come in and survive in this industry because it's hugely cutthroat. It's hugely competitive. Where I see a lot of people go wrong is they get into these degree programs, either at the undergrad, the master's level, and they assume just because I complete this degree, I'm going to be able to get a job in sports. That's a huge mistake. And people spend a lot of money pursuing these degrees. And then they're left upset when they're saying, well, I have the degree. Why aren't I getting the job? When you want to work in a competitive space, whether it's journalism, academia, sports, entertainment, unfortunately, it's not enough just to have the knowledge and the degree. You have to fully understand the business from top to bottom. So you have to be reading trade journals. You have to be taking yourself to conferences. You have to be networking. You have to be seeking out mentors and expanding your knowledge beyond the classroom And through that knowledge expansion, you should be able to understand, okay, here is where the industry is going. Here's the challenges the industry is facing. Here's the opportunity. And in one of those three buckets, you need to figure out what you can do for the industry. That's what I did with ruling sports. I jumped over a lot of steps in both of my careers. Most people who are journalists don't start at Forbes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most people who are sports journalists never cover a Super Bowl. I covered a Super Bowl as a credentialed member of the media my first year as a sports writer. That doesn't happen. But I had this specialized knowledge that let me jump a lot of hurdles. Um, Same with academia. I became a full-time professor at a top 50 university at 29 with no teaching experience, and I hadn't published any academic papers. Well, why did I get to do that? I had built a brand for myself, and that brand propelled me over a few steps. So I think if you really want to compete in a competitive job landscape, it's unfortunately, and this is really sad, it's unfortunately not enough to just have your degree. You you have to have something else. I I think you'll, yeah, like you said, you'll find that not just in sports industry, but just in so many of the the competitive levels and you've got to go above and beyond now and, and shadow and network and do all those things. Like you said, beyond the classroom. The biggest thing though, is my life changed when I realized it's not just the degree. It's not just shadowing. It's not just networking. I have to take all of those pieces to understand the industry and find a problem I can solve. You will only get ahead. You'll only move up the food chain when you can tell people what problem you can solve for them. So what I'm saying is you only move up the food chain when you tell people what you can do for them instead of asking what they can do for you. When I stopped networking from the mindset of, ooh, I need to meet this person because maybe he will give me a job, and instead approach networking from the perspective of, oh, I need to meet that person so I can tell him my idea about this problem he's facing. Everything changed. People want to talk to you. People want to work with you. People want to give you a job. And so if you can do that like simple mindset shift, it will open up a lot of opportunities. 
That's incredible. And obviously, Alicia, you are so knowledgeable and just an expert in your field. And obviously, you're making an impact on a lot of other people. I think a lot of listeners who are women, whether they're interested in the sports industry or another industry, I think just what you said is is just really encouraging. Did you have any, you know, last words or last uh, pieces of advice you wanted to give anyone? Well, since you brought up women, uh, I'm doing this massive research project right now for an organization called Women in Film, where through the research, I'm looking at why women don't receive the same funding for their film projects as men. And for the research, I have talked to, uh, think of like your major studios I've talked to the head people of those studios. I can't name them, but you can take a guess and Google them. And I've talked to producers, actresses, agents, and entertainment just to understand why do some people get opportunities and other people don't? And that conversation has proven what I just told you about if you are the type of person who gets out of the habit of just looking for someone to solve your problem, the problem being you need a job and shift your mindset to the perspective of how can I help that person I want to work for? So many more opportunities are going to come your way. What I'm seeing in the data is this isn't scientifically proven yet. So this is a very early analysis of the data. Women less so than men do not network strategically. And so there, it's not that women aren't meeting people. It's not that women aren't putting themselves out there. Women don't fully know how to characterize or explain the value they can bring to a person or an organization. Whereas a man, from my research, even if the man really isn't even qualified he will come into these meetings and he knows how to sell himself and convince a decision maker to invest heavily in him. And so I think there's a massive gap there. Other literature shows us that there's a gap there. But if you are a woman, I would encourage you, think about how you're presenting yourself in professional social functions. Who are you talking to? Are you only talking to people like you? Are you afraid to talk to a decision maker? What type of person do you actually need to bring into your social circle to get you to where you want to go? And if that person's not in your social circle right now, what can you do to get that person in there? Thank you to Alicia for donating her time to the show. Follow us on Instagram at Employed Podcast. And if you'd like to be a guest on our show, visit employedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. 